Welcome to Learn More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen and Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. This time we speak with Professor Johannes Chan, former dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and as well, a barrister who has appeared as leading counsel in many major public law cases. He is currently a visiting professor of University College London. Johannes reflects on his distinguished career with our senior partner, Colin Cohen. Stay tuned. It is a great privilege that I'm going to talk today with Professor Johannes Chan, senior counsel. He was formerly chair of public law at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. He is also the former dean of the faculty. He retired from Hong Kong U in July 2021 and is now appointed an adjunct professor after his retirement. He is a specialist in constitutional, administrative and human rights law, and he's published widely in these fields. Johannes, it's an honor to have you here. As I always ask all my guests, what's keeping you busy at the current time? I'm still involved in some part of university administration. So last week is still all interviews for a program, which indeed I helped setting up as the UCL Hong Kong UW degree program. So it takes me quite some time to go through all the interviewees and so on. I'm focused more on my research after my retirement. And I'm working on a book, which is about judicial independence and rule of law under one country, two systems. So it's a major project. It's things slowly and taking my time. But that's keep me busy and there are a whole lot of other things as well. (laughs) Yes. And just to help our listeners, what you're doing is this. You're interviewing students in London, hoping that they're going to come to Hong Kong U and spend a year in Hong Kong U. Have I got that right? Oh, more than that, it is a double degree that I set up during my deanship. The students spend two years in London with UCL and then the next two years with Hong Kong U. And after four years, they graduate with two degrees, one LB degree from UCL and one LB degree for Hong Kong. So it's a great catch and very attractive for a lot of very good students. They enjoy the benefit of being educated by two great law schools in the world. So it's more than just one year, so half of the degree in London and half a degree in Hong Kong. Yeah, and Hong Kong students go to UCLL, I presume, as well. Right. The first two years, I will be studying the first two years in UCL. And then the last two years, everyone will come back to Hong Kong and do the remaining part of the degree in Hong Kong. And we have simultaneous admission exercise carrying both in London and in Hong Kong. So that's what I've been doing. And we have been attracting very top students for that program. And it's a very small program. Great cross-fertilization, I would call that. Very interesting. Well, anyway, let's go back in time a little bit and a little bit of your upbringing, your childhood. Where did you study? And I'm going to ask you how you got yourself in to become a lawyer. Well, I came from a public housing. My family came from China, like most of the people in Hong Kong in the 1950s. They tried to avoid the turmoil in the mainland. And indeed, my maternal grandparents... They are small landlords in China and suffer quite a lot during the land reform in China later during the Cultural Revolution. So they came here almost as refugees. These days you call them economic migrants, hoping for some better futures. And we just work like that and work through the system. And partly because of their backgrounds, they don't trust law. They think law get inextricably involved with politics and politics is bad. So therefore, they don't want their children to study or to do anything with law or politics. And partly due to the influence of some very popular TV drama at that time. Social Worker is a very popular 
professions. So initially, I thought I, I that sounds interesting, and so initially, I thought I might just become a social worker and just to prepare myself. Just before the matriculations, I joined some voluntary organizations, doing some voluntary work with detainees in detention center. And at that time, they basically want someone of their age. These are all young kids, and then they just want to get playing football with them every week and get to know them. And then I start to get to know these people, and most of the people in detention center, they don't stay for a long time, six months, nine months, and then they are going out. A lot of them with family problems, they don't study well, and then when they are released, they go back to the same old circle, and then a few years later, they become an adult and become the adult prisoners, a criminal, and so on, which is very frustrating in a way. I think that that's what social workers is doing, and then you don't really change anything. And then a lot of these young kids, they are not bad guy at all, and most of them commit minor crime. And sometimes we don't catch the big guy, and then someone commit a minor theft. They are just standing outside. The one who committed the theft was not caught, and then they were caught, and then they put in detention center that kind of things, which aroused my curiosity. I want to know more about the system, know about law and so on. So that's what's bring me into law at that time with very vague idea whether I want to be a lawyer at all at that time. So you went from the LLB at the University of Hong Kong where you studied. And then you, obviously in those years, your contemporaries and some of your fellow classmates <laughs> are now probably doing quite well at the bar or at solicitors or even on the bench. Right, right. It's interesting. You then decided to do an LLM at the London School of Economics. Did you enjoy that? Oh, very much. I think it changed profoundly what I decided to do afterwards. Part of the reason at that time, and I'm probably the only one in my class which decided to continue with further studies. And again, in the early 80s, that's not very popular or very common. And people think that if you want to be a lawyer, then go and practice. And part of the reason I did that is by the time I complete my PCL, I'm still not quite certain I want to be a lawyer or not. And I was attracted to the bar, but I think I'm not quite ready yet. I want to see the world a bit. So I decided to go to RSD and mainly attracted by the professors whom I worked closely with, Professor Rosalind Higgins. And she was then a UK member of the Human Rights Committees. Later, she became the president of the International Court of Justice, an eminent human rights lawyer and also an honorary Queen's Council. And so I hope to see the world a bit, think a bit more what I want to do. And that period, I think Rosalind inspired me a lot in a way. And to some extent, my later career almost replicate what she has done. It's academia, public services, and so on. And she's able to combine everything. And I met a lot of very interesting people in London, which sparked my interest in research. And I think I enjoy the research work. And there are a lot of research which have not been done in Hong Kong. And I also reflect that I might want to do a job which is more human-oriented. To me, a profession is challenging, but largely it's not that human-oriented. You resolve a problem of your client. You finish the case and then you're out. You never see the client again and the client don't want to see you again, right? So if you're looking for someone which is really human-oriented, social workers too late to go back with law. And then I think about teaching is one thing. I could inspire the next generation of lawyers, students, teachings. That's a more human-oriented job. It combined with what I've learned. It combined with my research interests. And then it was thought at that time, the great uncertainty of Hong Kong and the Sino-British Joint Declaration negotiation has just started. No one knows what it will lead to. So I think that might be a good time to pursue an academic career. Hopefully, I may have more influence and I might be able to contribute more in that area. So I think that that year, in a way, changed me quite a lot and gave me a better idea and vision in London, give a better idea and vision what I really want to do with my life. 
And then you came back to Hong Kong, and in 1982, you were called to the bar. And just a little sidestep, I arrived in Hong Kong in 1981, and we met a little bit later, but you then went to the bar, you specialized in public law and human rights, and did you enjoy your practice in those early stages? Very much. Oh, in those cases, there's not much human rights cases, to be honest, at that time. And indeed, in the first almost 10 years, I did mostly typical what the junior barristers would do. I was lucky I got quite a bit of civil cases after that. So start with personal injury, contract, mercantile. And indeed, when you came, I was actually teaching personal property with Bob Alcock, mercantile law with Malcolm. And so I've done contract, I've taught and so on for quite some years until I think mid-1980 or most late 1980s, when Bill Clark joined us, then we start the course on civil liberties. But it is really after 1990s, I start really specializing in human rights. And human rights, public law has always been my interest. But I think in the early days of practice, it is quite useful to do all kinds of civil criminal cases. And indeed, I always advise my students when they want to specialize, you need the general criminal work, you need the general civil work, you need to understand how the system works before you specialize. And public law built a lot on that in a way. So I really started a career and that was the time after we have the Bill of Rights, 1991. But what is very interesting is that you became a lecturer in 1985. That's when you went into Hong Kong U. And that's when we first met because I arrived in 81. I was in practice and I got recruited by Professor Willoughby. They needed people to teach on the PCLL. So I ended up as a lecturer in law and I was in 83 to 88. And that's when I was teaching, I was told with Bob Alcock, to do mercantile law. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we were colleagues for those years, early days. Right, I enjoy very much that time, actually. Yeah, it's a a more cozy environment at that time. Nowadays, and just digressing, whenever I go to court, all the judges, even the chief justice is a judge who I taught, Anderson (laughs) Chow and lots of the court of appeal judges. Right. I was a lecturer, Mm -hmm. especially on the PCLL. That's when I was teaching accounts and doing other matters. So I enjoyed myself at Hong Kong. Yeah, I know you enjoyed yourself. And I then left to go into private practice in 1988. Right. But of course, you then continued with a very distinguished career at Hong Kong. You you set up many courses. Highlights of the early days. Did you ever end up thinking you'll do 40 odd years at Hong Kong? You. I'm probably not at that stage. I always try to maintain the balance between practice and academia. And I never really left practice as such, but it is very difficult. But having spent almost 40 years like you, I think I taught almost two thirds of the legal profession and the judiciary in a way. But yes, things changes. And I think there are a lot more that you want to do. I think partly because of Hong Kong keeps changing by 1980. Eight, I think I'm fortunate to join at the time. After 85, we have a lot of discussions on the basic law. We start drafting the basic law. And so it happens to be my areas. I, I had the opportunity to work with very senior people. I got very challenging jobs. Uh, otherwise, I would probably not have an opportunity to take part and shape both say how the basic law was drafted. There are a lot of constitutional debate and discussions. And then we have the Bill of Rights and Bill of Rights came into effect. You actually see through how Bill of Rights was actually enforced. I participate in some of those cases, try to train both the prosecutions and the defense lawyer on Bill of Rights and so on. And then with people like Andrew Burns, and then we try to set up a major international human rights program, trying to secure scholarship and we attract students, particularly from the more developing countries 
country in Asia. We attract at the height about 20 students each year from Sri Lanka, uh, Cambodia, and all these countries, which is now the Belt One Road country, except we started 20 years earlier. And from that on, I think it just carried on. And I know at some point, I would probably have to take up the more senior administrative role. Oh, you took that up quite early because you became head of the law department, first of all, and then you became dean from 2002 to 2014, which is quite a long term as a dean. But before that, you were head of the department. What I find quite interesting, because I was acting head for three months, and I had to spend so much of my time, which I really disliked in administration. How were you able to do all this research and all this academia and all this very interesting work, and yet you were head of department and then dean, which requires you to manage. And that must have taken up a lot of your time. I'm interested in that. A lot of colleagues take up the job because it is a duty to do it. And because you're senior, then you have to do it. And I got promoted as professor at that time, so I have to do it. And I, I try to avoid that kind of mentality. I think if you are in the job, you try to do the best you can. And as you said, that there are a lot of administrative work and one thing I think is university is sometimes too rigid and we don't have enough support administratively and you end up all the academics doing administrative job. That is not a very fruitful and a good use of resources. So when I became head, one of the things I want to do is shield off my colleagues from administrative work. I will take up most of the administrative work and leave colleagues to have the space and time to do what they should properly do. And then at that time, there was a lot of things that need to be shaken up. In 1999, when I became head of departments, Roper Redmond published their report, very controversial report, among other things, is to ab abolish the PCLL. So one of the things is how to get out from that in a way. But then there are a lot of reforms that needs to be done. And I think it is an advantage for me, partly because of my practice background. I'm on very good terms with the professions, particularly with the bar and the law society. And at least they are talking to someone who knows the practice in a way. So I think it is easily helped. And there are a lot of misunderstanding on both sides. We don't have a lot of people like you across both sides at that time. And I think a lot of colleagues need to know better the practice and the practice needs to know better the professions. So that's one thing which keep me very busy and then... By the time when I finish my headship, and I know it's, university is a great time. And what I think at that time is Hong Kong is good. We have a lot to do on the PCLL side, both the curriculum reform as well as the governance structure. And I'm all for that the profession should have a bigger say in the PCLL. After all, these are preparing students for practice. So it should be a more healthy and more intensive collaboration. But at that time, the university, the faculty is still very much a local teaching university, we are good, but it's still largely local. And I think the way out is to become really international and globally visible. And we have to benchmark ourselves with the best university in the world. We should benchmark ourselves and try to bring ourselves to that kind of status. And so that's what I tried to do in the first couple of years as the deanship. Hong Kong also a, a very challenging time at that time. As soon as I took up deanship, it was the time when professor who had stepped down because of alleged interference with academic freedom, uh, the Robert Chung affairs. So university was in a very low morale at that time. So we have to steer through that, bring up the morale, reshape Hong Kong U, and then Lepchi came and Lepchi is great. And he 
leaves a lot of rooms for the deans and he's very supportive of the deans. And so we start working how to global internationalization and so on. And the dean's role is very different from what it used to be. And before that, the dean is mainly responsible for teaching. And at the time since I took up the deanship, we changed the role almost completely. So I was responsible for strategic planning, human resources, financial planning and budgeting, PR, external relationship, fundraising. I feel I'm running a company. That's it. I mean, the current dean said exactly the same thing to me. And what is also very interesting, in 2002, you became dean. But very interestingly, in 2003, you became the first, and I think only, honorary senior counsel in Hong Kong. And to our listeners, the senior counsel in Hong Kong is equivalent of the King's Council in England. Now, how did that all come about? Is that something you approached where you had the official tap on the shoulder? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it comes as a very strange and almost totally unexpected and Of course, partly since 1991, my practice, I still maintain a bit of practices all in public law and so on. And I always think that the priority has to be the university. So by 2003, one afternoon, I just received a call from Andrew Lee. And Andrew called me, Johannes, we are thinking of giving you the title of Honorary Senior Counsel. Do you want to accept it? And how could anyone say no? (laughs) Now, frankly, the idea of applying for silk has come across. I think no barristers would say that they have never thought about that. But at that time, because you know there is certain criteria, one of the criteria is your income level has to exceed certain amount before you are eligible to apply. And being almost a part-time practice, I know I'll never reach that level. So I think I give up and I don't think... I'll ever get that as such. So when you receive a call from Andrew, it is really surprising. And of course, I say yes. And then the next thing Andrew said, yes, then prepare for that. We'll make the announcement in a couple of weeks time. And so the same ceremony as any other sale can just prepare for that. And I remember that because at that stage, there were others appointed and I always get invited to the silks reception at the Hong Kong club. I remember it was a very great occasion. Now, your senior counsel, Tell us about the cases, your landmark cases, anything that you really feel proud of. Well, there are quite a number of cases which are, are I'd certainly be proud of. Even before I took Silk, after the changeover, there was a prosecution. It was the last time I act as prosecution on Fiat against Oriental Press. They have a paparazzi trail against Godfrey Case. Great Arsenal supporter and unfortunately passed some years. Lovely, lovely man. Yeah, and I think that after the changeover, the Department of Justice was concerned that they have to prosecute a major newspaper in Hong Kong. So what better than to get a human rights lawyers to prosecute that? So that was a fun case. But after that, I think another very major case, which I remember well, is the social welfare, which the first case on social welfare and represents someone who came to Hong Kong. And then her husband passed away three days after she arrived in Hong Kong. She was driven out by the public housing because she was not a tenant. And she applied for social security. She has to initially to live for one year and then somehow the social welfare department raised the bench to seven years. So we are challenging whether that substantial increase in eligibility requirement violates the right to social welfare. Did the case against David Panic all the way to the qualifying appeal, which is great fun and 
partly also during that case, I received a lot of very angry messages from people saying that I am spoiling Hong Kong economy and how could you give uh, social welfare to these new immigrants and a lot of racist discriminations uh, remarks. And, and Lord Panic, on another case, has received exactly the same when he was acting in cases in England recently. People don't realize that we as lawyers, we are duty bound, especially with you as barristers, we are there to defend, to do our very best. We may not like our clients. We do it because we are really so important to the rule of law. Now, what is also fascinating is that you have also an outstanding record of public service, council, broadcasting authority, press council, they're just a few. Yet you're heavily involved in big cases. You have a massive teaching obligation, administration, how do you manage your time to have such distinguished services on those entities? Well, one just has to be very disciplined. And actually, like what you have been doing, I've been enjoying all your blog. And I'm sure that you are writing your blog while you are flying on the plane and so on. Yeah. To some extent, particularly with academic work, to do serious academic work, you really need a very focused, concentrated period of time. And as dean, I think the work of a dean is very much like a solicitor's is that at any time, 30 people are asking to see you with all 30 different problems or 40 different problems. So you deal with one thing and then you may put down another phone call come in. So you can't really concentrate. And at that time, I did a lot of international traveling for collaboration, building up the international profile. I participate in academic conferences. And what I did is sometimes is every three conferences, I used two of them to prepare my academic work. So while I'm overseas, while I'm on the plane, that is the the time no one can disturb me, 14 hours of flight. And I'm very good actually in writing on airplane, but it is tough. The timing, I think, is just quite amazing. And back to the earlier question you raised about the campus building. I was in the Knowles building and when I left in 1988, we all complained and it was always this project in the background. I was always told by the deans before you, Don't worry, we're going to move into wonderful buildings and you'll find it a lot easier to work and help. Don't go to private practice, please. (laughs) But I couldn't do both. I had to go to private practice because I was so busy doing all these big cases. So tell us about the building. Absolutely fabulous, that building. Yeah, so in 1988, I think we moved to KK Leung. And very soon, KK Leung, I was overthrown. I don't have enough space and so on. And by the time I took the deanship, one thing I think is if we say that the rule of law is so important and we are the oldest law school and a prestigious law school. The state of the law school actually tells you how important the rule of law is. And visit some countries with a law school, say they are very good, a very shabby building next to a broken public toilet and so on. I think that that in a way tells you the rule of law in the country as well. So I think this is something important that we should have our own building in a way. So as soon as I take up the deanship, that's one thing I think I would like to do. Initially, I have my eyes on the old halls like that kind of classic buildings. Uh, At that time, the three blocks of old halls, one of them has been demolished, but the remaining two, and I think that that looks befitting for a law school. The problem with that kind of building is you need a very large plot and you can't build too high. And also there are listed buildings. And then I find that the maintenance cost is astronomical. But then I actually did a pilot studies. I engaged colleagues from architecture department to do the studies for me and so on. So after all this work, my conclusion is that that is the no-go and it doesn't really fit our purpose. 
I'll be looking for alternative sites. And then the Centennial Campus ideas come up. And luckily, because I've done all the pilot studies, the next day I go to Lapchi and say, I have a full plan. I know exactly what I want and I have to study and etc. And then on the Centennial campuses, I don't want a, a matchbox. I don't want a square building. There's just too much on them. Or at least I want something different. And at far end, you always have more flexibility and so on. And so that's how I got the building uh, ahead of other deans before they start planning. I got everything everything done already. And I think it's a nice building and I participate heavily in the design, work closely with the architects and especially during the last phase, I was on a construction site almost every week. You, you have to be there to see how things done and so on. And I'm particularly proud of the conference room at the top with all the glass panel overlooking the Western Harbour, make good use of the space. Great. I'm still an honorary lecturer. Somehow every three years, they still keep me up. I must be doing something well, right. And I give lectures absolutely. occasionally to the students. And the new lecture hall, the moot court, as they call it now, is the big lecture room. Really modern, up-to-date facilities, which is really great. And then moving on a bit, people don't realize in 2021, July, you retired from the university. That is because you reached age 60. So you retired to do part-time matters and you're now in London. The future, where do you see yourself going from now on? I'm 68 and everybody asks me, what's my retirement strategy? So I'm asking <laughs> you, Johannes, what is your retirement right. strategy? If any, I say I do not wish to retire at all at the moment. <laughs> well, I think retirement just means that you are free to pursue what you really want to do and without having to account to your boss and so on. So especially at these days, I think, yes, people like to linger on with the job longer. And at the same time, having worked for almost 40 years, and I think when I am healthy, when I can still enjoy life a bit, maybe I should start working on something else that I'm really interested in, or start another part of my life, which I don't have chance to do and so on. So as far as academic work is concerned, it doesn't really matter. I keep publishing, I keep writing. So whether I'm with university or not doesn't really matter, except how many articles for submission for assessment and the research assessment exercise. I don't have to do that anymore. Just do it. And I end up even more productive than before. And then I can pursue other things. And I think at a party, my colleagues kindly flow for me for my retirement. I said one thing, I'm still hoping to become a professional golfer. Yes, that never <laughs> happens. I always think I'm going to become one. And what about practice? Are you still doing a bit of practice? Less and less so when I'm not in Hong Kong. At first, I think I might be doing a bit more. And during the COVID time, I'm still appearing online. But these days, I think the court is very reluctant to grant online hearing, which may be a pity in a way. The court could be more flexible on that because that's one way we can tap a lot of outside talent unless I'm coming back to Hong Kong, and which I won't rule that out. Hong Kong, there's still a lot of good friends around. I still enjoy Hong Kong very much. Yeah, so, so let me ask you something about that. It's been a very challenging four years for Hong Kong. Troubles, three years of COVID, being locked up, quarantine. We're emerging from all of that. What are your thoughts on the future of this great and wonderful city? It's my home and I have no intention of leaving at all. Your views? Yes, I think Hong Kong has always been very resilient. We have gone through many crises before. And this time, I think Hong Kong faced a great challenge, not so much from outside, but from inside in a way, which differs. I still think that this is a great place, that there are a lot of potentials. But one thing for one country, two system, I think the essence of it is we are different. That's why there are two systems. And in the last couple of years, I think we talk too much about convergence. We 
do not talk enough about divergence. And the value of Hong Kong to China is because we are different. We do things differently. We have our own values. We have our own way of doing things. And Hong Kong is an international city. That's how Hong Kong is different. If you become another Shanghai, another Shenzhen, we lose the value both to, for ourselves and for China. I think this is a change which we haven't seen before. In the previous crisis, whether it's Asian financial crisis or other crises that we have, the SARS and so on, every time we manage to come through and we still maintain some of the core values there. And this time around, I see too much about this convergence. And convergence not only on the political side, it's on the mental side. For example, in the university, we are now looking inward to China as our benchmark. Now, of course, there are things that which we could definitely learn from China. But like in my days when I was teen, what I aspire the Hong Kong U is we have to be at the level, if not Oxbridge, we have to be the Harvard in the Asia. We have to be at the same league as those top Ivy League universities. And I'm sure the same is the aspiration of almost every different profession. We are aiming at the best in the world, that kind of standard we should adhere to. And these days, our benchmark is basically the Greater Bay. And of course, it is an ambitious project of the governments. But if I ask how many people in Hong Kong knows what are the city in the Greater Bay, I think very few people will be able to name all the city in a way. And then it seems we are increasingly cutting off from the outside world as if we don't care. I think that is the greatest challenge. And if Hong Kong is to survive this round of challenge, we have to be bold enough to say we are different and we want to maintain a different value, a different system. And then we should continue to benchmark to maintain our link with the outside world. I think that's the only way. And Hong Kong has to be remain different in order to be valuable. So if you can maintain that, I think Hong Kong has a, a very bright future. But then otherwise, I think that the danger is Hong Kong becomes just another city in the mainland. Well, it will still have its value, but then it will never be the same Hong Kong then. I agree with you entirely. It's the uniqueness of Hong Kong, the ability to have the system, the way in which the courts, the rule of law, which is fundamental to the way of life. And the high degree of autonomy is the way into all of that. Johannes, you're a great friend of mine. It's an honor and a privilege to have you talking to us. Thank you so much for joining us on Law & More. Thank you. Great to talk to you as well. Thank you. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose Cohen & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news, and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com, or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on our next episode. <laughs>